All right, so this morning we will be continuing in Acts, and rather than camping in one specific chapter, we're going to be jumping around to a few. Uh, Last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, and in our study on getting to know the Holy Spirit, this morning I've titled the, the lesson, Receiving the Holy Spirit, Receiving the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about a variety of things related to receiving the Holy Spirit, but... I wanted to first start off with discussing just kind of in general something that maybe you've heard about, maybe you haven't, maybe this is um, new, but I'm going to rattle off a few different terms and kind of they're all lumped into the same category, but um, Christian perfectionism or an understanding of the Christian life that's kind of a two-stage Christian life, like you you get saved and then eventually you surrender or understanding Jesus as Savior as somehow distinct from Jesus as Lord. Has anyone heard these sorts of terms? Christian perfectionism, Savior, but not Lord, those sorts of things? Yes, no. Am I the only one who's heard that? Yes, kind of. Hands, maybe. Okay, all right. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely around. It's been around for a good 150 years, I guess more than that now. It really started in the mid-1800s with what was called the Holiness Movement, which sounds great, but attached with the holiness movement was this idea of Christian perfectionism, which is a Christian can become perfect here on earth, no longer experiencing any sin at all, um, this side of eternity, and that after that experience, the Christian is then kind of living in this higher plane of Christian perfectionism. Before they were living this defeated Christian life, and now they're living this victorious Christian life, and that happened at a moment different than salvation. And a couple of the passages used for that we'll be talking about today, but I wanted to just discuss that right from the get-go because it's something that you may have heard, maybe not, but it's something that you'll want to be equipped to engage with either way. So the first thing we're going to talk about today is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and broadly asking the question, how many baptisms are we talking about in Scripture for the Christian? How many baptisms are there? So baptism, the word baptism, does anyone know what baptism means? Micah. It, it comes from a Greek root. I'm pretty sure it means to like death, to, to death or immersion or something like that. Yep, yep, nailed it. Immersion is the primary, also means dip, but primarily immersion. And the English word for baptism is exceedingly not helpful because the English word is just... As Micah highlighted, it's just a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. So what sounds like baptizo? Baptism. But that doesn't actually help us at all with the meaning. Like, if you're looking at the word baptism, you're not going to find the meaning entailed in the word. Um, it, It has come straight from Greek and not always been translated helpfully. But often when we come across the word baptism in our Bibles, we assume that's talking about what we see on a Sunday morning or what we've seen at a a river or a lake when someone gets immersed in water and comes back up. And we think, we, we, we narrow our focus to think that that's what baptism is referring to, but really we need to broaden it and say baptism equals immersion. Baptism means immersion. So, a couple things when we talk about baptism, and again, we're thinking about immersion. The first is we are saved by immersion into Christ. Saved by immersion into Christ. Take a look at uh, Romans 6. And we'll look at Romans 6, 3 through 6. 
to see the way Paul uses this term baptism and the implications for this term is really what we're looking at. Could someone read Romans 6, 3 through 6, nice and loud for us? Thank you, Joel. And for the record, throughout this morning, there's going to be hopefully a lot of back and forth. So what are, what are some things we observe about baptism here and the way it's used? What are some things that stand out? Lob a few out. Do we see water baptism here? No, I mean just here in this passage, Romans 6. Are we talking about water baptism or something else? Something else. Yes, thank you, Russ. What are some indications that we're talking about something else? It talks about that it's the same imagery as Christ being crucified, buried, and rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, if we, if we read the word baptized and we insert the word immersed, maybe that's helping us realize that we're immersed into, into who or what? Christ, exactly, yes. So, and this is talking about salvation because we are immersed into Christ, which means as we're united with him, we're buried and with him by immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this immersion into Christ's death, therefore guaranteeing our immersion and union with him in his resurrection. So this is in reference to salvation, immersed into Christ, united with Christ. The second thing we see is that we are saved by, um, that's a typo, saved by God's merciful, mercifully washing us by the Holy Spirit. Saved by God mercifully washing us by the Holy Spirit. Check out Titus 3, 4 through 7. When you talk about washing and regeneration and renewal, Titus 3, 4 through 7, first one there, just shout it out. Thank you. So again, we don't read the word baptism or immersion here, but we we do read the word of washing, regeneration, renewal. Who is it that's doing the renewing and the washing? Shout it out. We got a volume. Yes, Holy Spirit. And why? What's 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 the motivator for why this happens? His mercy. Whose mercy? And, and not what? Exactly. Yes. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. So this is a cleansing, a washing, a regeneration, a renewal that's not 
a result of the things that we have done, not a result of any work that we have done. By faith is what we're in reference to. So that, that regeneration, that renewal, is not as a, a trigger, not triggered by some sort of physical action that we did. So on the flip side of this, we're not looking at, I got water baptized and then I got regenerated. No, that's not what's in reference here. It's not because of works done by us, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's not, how some, not like somehow being washed in water leads to being washed by the Spirit. So those two things in mind as we're talking about baptisms. Number four, the disciples are then immersed in water as a reflection of this union with Christ. So the disciples of Christ are then immersed in water as a reflection of this union with Christ. So this is from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where the disciples, here are the apostles, but carries on throughout uh, the ages, is, are commanded in light of the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then this is an action that the disciples, followers of Christ, are to be doing to those new disciples, baptizing them, immersing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So they're commanded to do this physical action of water baptism. And that's the pattern we see throughout Acts. And we'll look at a few of those passages also that they believe and then they get baptized. They believe, they're saved, and then they get baptized. Now, some authors and preachers today wrongly teach that there is, in addition to these two baptisms, you could say, the, the, the first being the, the baptized into Christ when we become believers, and then the second being physical water baptism, where that's pictured and portrayed for the whole church to see and, and celebrate symbolically, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in newness of life. There are some that teach in addition to that is a third baptism. And that's kind of what we talked about with that Christian perfectionism, this kind of third experience that happens subsequent to, after salvation, sometime in someone's Christian life, is that they get spirit baptized. And one place where this gets drawn from is in Acts 2.38. And we, we read it last week, but Acts 2.38, the, after the first Christian sermon, the response, Acts 2, and we'll start in verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what they, they do with this verse is essentially they say, see, there's three things happening here. They say, look, there's repentance, then there's baptism, but then there's the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And what they, they, they make a, an error that is, it's apparent, even in English, it's even more apparent in Greek, but basically it's, there's an imperative, do this. There's another imperative, do this. Repent, be baptized. But then there's a third that's just what's going to flow from that. The reality that happens as a result of that is, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But those that want to teach that this needs to be this third experience, then say that that's something that you need to pursue, you need to do distinct from your salvation. So hopefully there's, um, yeah, 
it's, it's the difference between imperative, do this, and indicative, explaining that this will happen. Any questions on that or points of clarification? Is that bobblehead yes, if that's making sense? Or, yes, Henry, question. It's a whole lot of things that varies from group to group. Um, sometimes it's go on a kind of a spiritual journey or a pilgrimage type thing. A lot of fasting and praying and, and hoping that you get this spiritual experience. Um, it's often associated with waiting for something wow, boom, physical to happen like what happened here where they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, which meant, boom, able to speak in tongues. So as far as what do you do for it, it's, it's usually, I think, the, the language is kind of um, tarrying or waiting for, just you have to want it with all your heart kind of thing, and um, no reservations, throw open the door of your heart, and, and just pray that God gives you this third experience. So, Any other questions? Does, does that answer the question, Henry, kind of? So, and we're going to look at a few other um, passages later of the four unique accounts of receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts. We'll get to that after um, probably another few minutes. And we'll look at a few of these, again, key features of the transitional phase of Acts, which really are really instrumental in the way we understand this. So, any other questions? Okay. So in letter B there, Andrew Nacelli wrote a book called No Quick Fix. It's an excellent, excellent book, really just walking through passage by passage why we don't believe in Christian perfectionism um, today and why we, we don't believe that we're going to reach this some sort of higher spiritual plane in which we're no longer tempted to sin, we're no longer dealing with any legitimate battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Language really contrary to the New Testament epistles. But he addresses a number of different things. So one of the things he does that I think is especially helpful is establish that all Christians are spirit-baptized, and our key verse for that is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So take a, take a peek at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And it's really helpful when we think through why we believe all Christians are spirit-baptized, not this sort of we're, we're waiting and wondering if this second experience is going to happen. So 1 Corinthians 2 Sorry, not 2, 12. And I'll start in verse 12. So 12, 12, 1 Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So this verse, with abundant clarity, establishes that there's not this certain class of Christians that, yeah, they're saved, but they don't really have the Holy Spirit. They haven't received the Spirit. It's not like there's that group and then this other group that's like, they got it. They have the, 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 the Holy Spirit, the, the secret sauce that makes Christianity easy and, and powerful. No, Paul clearly establishes that those in Christ have the Spirit. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. 
And a couple other things that we see predicting this. Could I have, and we'll read all these verses except for John 14 through 17. We're not going to read all that this morning. So could I have someone, as we look at, John the Baptist predicts that it would occur. Someone to read Matthew 3.11. Thank you, Henry. Someone to read Mark 1.8. Thank you. Someone to read Luke 3.16. Thank you. And then someone for John 1.33. Thank you, Caitlin. And then someone for Acts 1.5. Thank you. Someone for Luke eleven thirteen. Thank you, Anthony. Someone for Luke twenty four forty nine. Thank you, Joel. And then someone for John seven thirty seven through thirty nine. Thank you. All right. So just uh, in order, feel free and read those out. Could you actually read verse 12 too? Because Holy Spirit and fire is really important. That that's, one is a really good thing and one is really a not good thing. So verse 12. Yep. Uh, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Excellent. So the reference to uh, spirit baptism, good. Baptism with fire, not good. That's in reference to judgment. So uh, Mark 1.8. And then Luke 3.16. And then John So then Jesus guarantees that it would occur. Acts 1 5. Thank you. And then Luke 11 13. Yes, you can read better than I. Thank you. <laughs> and then 24 49. And then John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Awesome. And we're going to hold off on the Peter affirms that it did occur, because we're going to be looking at that actual 11 passage in a minute. But then Paul explains the theological significance of these occurrences. So John 6, one, or sorry, not John 6, Romans 6, 1 through 4. We already looked at the um, kind of the second part of that verse, but let's turn to, to Romans 6, 1 through 3. 1 through 4, wow, numbers. And if someone wants to read Romans 6, 1 through 4, nice and loud for us.
We already read the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 passage, but could someone read Galatians 3.27? A hand for Galatians 3.27. Thank you, Isaac, again. And then someone who hasn't read one for Ephesians 4, 5. Thank you, Sarah. And then someone for Colossians 2.12. Thank you, Joe. And then, yeah, go ahead with the uh, Galatians 3.27 passage. baptized into Christ. So Ephesians 4, 5. Awesome. And then Colossians 2, 12. Thank you, Joe. So all those passages in Paul really is him explaining, again, the, the heading theological significance, but explaining why it matters that we were all baptized into one body, why it matters that we all have the Holy Spirit, why it matters that there's not two classes of Christians, like a, a Christian that has and a Christian that has not. So there's a lot of significant truth that hinges on the fact that we truly are all in one body, all a part of God's family equally. And that was especially critical in the early church when there was the need to establish the fact that there's not the the Jewish Christians that have it and then the Gentile Christians that kind of have it, but thoroughly established that all are one in Christ, all have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, all are in the same body. So spirit baptism, this is again Nacelli speaking, spirit baptism is Christ's judicially placing Christians in the Holy Spirit when God regenerates them, thus placing them into the body of Christ. The central text for spirit baptism is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Any questions so far? Yes. So is baptism like a justification once and for all thing, or is it more of a, like you're saying, regeneration, like sanctification over and over again? So being immersed into Christ is kind of like one and the same event as being justified by being regenerated. That happens once for all. So, um, yeah, the being, being baptized into Christ. Again, we have to be really careful with the language because... We don't want to think baptism equals being water baptized because being water baptized is just the symbol of what's happened, a symbol of being buried in the likeness of his resurrection. So like he was buried, that happened once, or buried in the likeness of his death, sorry, and then raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So once one-time action, that, that, um, that immersion into Christ happens once. And there's, there's some things we'll, we'll talk about at the end uh, this morning that kind of alludes to there's kind of the being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's something to be like to daily seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. So that's, a, that's an ongoing daily pursuit, really. But as far as the being immersed into Christ, that Spirit baptism is a once for all, once, once and done for the believer. So heading two here, receiving Christ, and this, this rolls right into our question, actually. Receiving Christ is receiving the Spirit. Receiving Christ is receiving the Spirit. This quote from Sinclair Ferguson, I think, is really helpful in the end of one of his chapters in the Holy Spirit, a, a book called The Holy Spirit. In the one context in which he, this is Paul, reflect, reflects on the psychology involved in this reception, Paul indicates that it takes place, quote, 
by believing what you heard, by contrast with observing the law. Galatians 3, 2, and 5. The Spirit is received in the context of coming to faith in Christ the Lord. For Paul, therefore, in the normal pattern of experience in the Gentile world, the Spirit is not received separately from faith initiation into Christ. It is in believing into Christ that the Spirit of Christ is received. For believing into Christ brings with it the reality of, re- of the receiving of Christ and his indwelling. This is one and the same reality as the reception and indwelling of the Spirit, since it is in and by the Spirit that Christ comes to dwell, uh, to indwell us. As Paul's interplay of the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Spirit in Romans 8, 8 through 9 makes clear, the two realities are economically one and experienced as one by the individual. There is no other mode of receiving the Spirit then by the faith's reception of Christ. To have Christ is to have the Spirit. That last sentence, to have Christ is to have the Spirit. I thought that was a good conclusion on this section and a helpful summary. Lord willing, Romans 8, 8 through 9 we'll look at um, next week. Any questions with distinction between receiving Christ, receiving the Spirit being non-existent? Yes. Yeah, so receiving Christ, being saved, being justified, that is a momentary thing. Sanctification is a prolonged thing. That doesn't happen instantly. But, but being saved is momentary. It happens in a moment in our lives. But I think one thing that's helpful to realize there is that um, although receiving the Spirit is a one-time thing, grieving the Spirit is a language that New Testament uses, and that's kind of a, can be an ongoing thing. It's a problem, an ongoing problem to be walking not in step with the Holy Spirit, to be going against the Holy Spirit's prompting in our lives. So I think that might be what it looks like from the outside. It was like, oh, it looked like this person was maybe gradually receiving the Holy Spirit, but that, that wouldn't be the case. They were, they were saved, they received the Holy Spirit, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 uh, clarifies. So that's a one-time thing. But the fact that someone can grieve the Holy Spirit or, or not walk in step with the Holy Spirit um, does indicate that there can be this sort of kind of ups and downs in the Christian life. It's, it's not like when you're saved and you receive the Holy Spirit, that instantly means the rest of your Christian life is going to be easy um, or that you're never going to have any trouble with sin again. But the Spirit will be working contrary to those things. Does that clarify that a little bit, how that might look in a believer's life? Any other questions? Good question. All right. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Going off what Anthony said, um, a, a lot of people might question infant baptism, especially referring to Acts 16, mm-hmm. because uh, going and this whole thing when you're baptized. And so what would be your counter to that? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's about the only passage that that's going to come from, and we never have any command in Scripture to baptize infants. Um, that's not implied. What is very clearly established throughout scripture is believe and be baptized. So if, 
If, you're, if you want to argue that a, an infant can make a, a rational decision to turn from sin, put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, um, and then they volitionally, in response to that, want to get baptized, um, I guess then maybe I have a category for infant baptism, but I don't have a category for an infant that can reason that way and, and understand their sin that way. So, so no, because a person can't repent, because they can't believe, put faith in Christ, that would be getting things out of order and confusing what baptism is. Because baptism is supposed to be, water baptism is supposed to be a physical expression of what's happened internally because of Christ's saving work. So that'd be a brief response to, to that claim for infant baptism. Again, I would say, yeah, brothers and sisters who disagree with us on that can absolutely still be saved. That's not a salvation issue, but it definitely does confuse what we mean when we're saying um, you're saved when you believe in Christ. Well, they might say, well, I was baptized as a baby, so I think I'm good. No. <laughs> so, Any other questions? All right, let's look at the four unique accounts of receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts. Four unique accounts of receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts. Does anyone remember what verse we would turn to for the general outline of the book of Acts? What verse has the general outline of the book of Acts in it? If you have your notes from last week, you can, you can cheat. It's one verse you could turn to in Acts as a general outline for the book of Acts. Yeah, Acts 1.8, nailed it. You want to read it for us? <clears throat> um, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Bingo. So, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses in these different phases and waves, really. In Jerusalem, kind of like immediate proximity, Judea, regional proximity, Samaria, that would have been a surprise to those hearers. What, really? We're going to be witnesses to Samaria, those people, and to the very ends of the earth, the, the Gentiles beyond. So last week, we, look at Acts, we looked at Acts 2, and Acts 2, 1 through 13 marks the birth of the church, the birth of the church. And the apostles, Jewish believers, receive the Spirit in a very visible way. And this is, again, distinct, because we're talking about a transitional Book, a book that's documenting the birth of the church. So they receive the Spirit in a very visible way to establish this is marking something different, this is marking something new. The second that we see is the gospel. So the birth of the church happening in Jerusalem, and that is in Judea. So Jerusalem is in, within that region. The second major moment is when the gospels believed by the Samaritans. In Acts 8. Turn with me to Acts 8. Persecution has broken out in uh, Jerusalem. The first martyr has been stoned. Saul is ravaging the church. And as a result, the church is spreading out. Philip, one of the uh, seven that were chosen in Acts 6 to be kind of like a proto-deacon taking care of needs of the body, he is now... Philip the Evangelist, proclaiming Christ in Samaria in verse 4. So, in Acts 8, 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Picking up in verse 9 still. But when there was a man, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, Philip up in Samaria, not an apostle, apostles in Jerusalem, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, this is a people hated by the Jews, this was this used to be the northern kingdom, and then all sorts of political shifts happened, and basically they ended up intermarrying with a bunch of um, non-Jewish people, which is a horrible, horrible thing to do in that day. And they basically became this, what the Jewish people thought of as a half-breed, and they yet still had this kind of syncretistic worship that kind of incorporated aspects of the Old Testament law, but kind of mingled it with other religions. That was the Samaritans. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, two apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, and then it goes on to say, And now Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Yada, yada, Simon goes on to really reveal that he's not a, not a true believer. He's just in it for the, the abilities that could come. But what's really important to note here, and maybe you've already observed it, is that the fact that we're talking about Samaria here, a group hated by the Jews, and a group that already had a distinct kind of Christian-ish, well, Jewish-ish worship, what could have happened in this moment, really, was that Philip goes, shares the gospel with the Samaritans, they believe it, and if, if at the moment of their belief they'd also received the Holy Spirit with all of the gifts associated with Acts 2, what could have happened is there may not have been essentially communication between the apostles and Samaria, and the Christianity that just started up there may have just morphed in with the syncretism that was already present. And what would have happened is functionally two, two bodies would have happened, which is why it was so important that the apostles were present in this account. That's the, the huge significance that's emphasized is that the Spirit didn't come on these individuals until the apostles, those present in Acts 2, were present with these individuals. So Philip was not an apostle the apostolic presence helped to ensure full continuity between Jewish and Samaritan Christianity so that there wouldn't be a divide forming within the body right from the get-go. So it would be established this is one body, one church, one gospel to be believed, and the apostles there as the, as the, the, the main 
I mean, there's not written scripture to go off to, to verify the reality of what's happening. So the, the apostolic authority, those that are apostles, is what's uh, verifying that. So questions related to this passage. I don't see as many furrowed brows as I could have, so Henry. So, again, we're talking special cases of kind of early church, what the, the infancy of the church looks like. So there's going to be some distinctions as we're talking about Acts that's going to look like Acts 2, being last week being a prime example of some things happened in Acts 2 that don't happen every time someone receives the gospel. And the same is true here when we have a, we have, looking at the outline of the book of Acts, this is one of those pivot moments that moves us into the next outline. That's the gospel's now going to Samaritans. So pivotal moment in which the Spirit, in this case, with the, the, the visual manifestations as indicated by the fact that Simon was able to see something just happened, something physical is happening. So that's why I would say this isn't, this isn't merely just a indwelling of the Holy Spirit. With this is associated what we'd call the sign gifts, gifts that are Simon was able to see. People that just had the apostles' hands laid on them are able to do things that they weren't able to do five minutes ago. I want that power because I'm a magician. I make money by deceiving people, essentially. I want to be able to do what they're doing. And it really indicated that his, Simon's motivations were financial and deceptive, not that of a legitimate follower of Christ. So it revealed kind of the, the, what Jesus talks about, the tares and the wheat, how there's many that will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not this, 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 and this? He would be accounted as one of those that said, did I not do this in your name? And Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. In Simon's case. Yes. No, because Judas was. Yeah, so Judas was mis- replaced by Matthias. So he, he filled that extra apostolic office. But then you also have Paul as an example of, of an apostle that wasn't among those 12. And he talks about himself as I, uh, the, the least of the apostles, not even worthy. But as one untimely born, Christ received to him or um, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So that was one of the criteria for apostleship, was that one, it was specifically appointed by Christ, and second, to have physically seen the resurrected Christ. And that's why Matthias had to have been one of the ones that was from, with them from the beginning so that he could be uh, a replacement. And that's what happened immediately prior to Acts 2 that we read last week. So, not ex- go ahead. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's not, not listed as uh, filling that office. So, go ahead. Um, I, think, I don't remember the exact passage, but I think when Jesus picks out his 12, because it doesn't put out his, not in verse 30, I don't remember the specifics of the 12 names. Um, also in Revelation, it talks about the New Jerusalem. Go back and find it. He has 12 um, names. Uh, the, the city has 12 foundations. Has 12 foundations that are named after Um, 
Yeah, there there is a there is a Philip that was one of the disciples, but then there's one of the Philip that was established. Um, let's let's look at um, uh, Acts six. So we're talking about two different Philips. Acts six five, the church was to select seven men to meet these needs, and these these were the apostles saying to the church, select seven men. So one of the one of the apostles, which would have been among the 12 selected initially, would have been the Philip, Philip the apostle. And then he is among the apostles saying, no, the apostles need to devote themselves to the word, select seven men. Happens to be that one of those men in verse 5 uh, is named Philip. So that could be part of the confusion. There's two Philips. And that's also why we look at in, in Acts 8, where we read... Let me, verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent to them Peter and John, two apostles. So that's why we know that Philip in Acts 8 is not Apostle Philip, because otherwise the apostles wouldn't be the ones getting news. Go ahead. Um, just quickly, what's the first reference for talking about the apostles? There's multiple within Paul. I don't know all the top of my head, but basically where he's listing out... Um, the one about him being untimely born and having seen Christ, there are more than I know off the top of my head. So I will try to have that list for next week. All right, I want to, yeah, fly. So the gospel believed by the Gentiles, see, the gospel believed by the Gentiles. So we just saw the gospel believed by the Samaritans, a major, major pivot in the book of Acts. Maybe pivot might be the wrong word, a progression in the book of Acts. And then see the gospel believed by the Gentiles, Cornelius' house, Acts 10. I had intended to read a chapter and a half here, and now we won't. So, among other things... This is the passage that lets us know it's okay for us to eat bacon. So for some of you, that, that's maybe the most significant portion of this passage. I assure you there's much more significant to this passage than the fact that it allows us to eat bacon. So um, God appears to Peter in a vision. Well, an angel appears to Peter in a vision and reveals a, a fair bit of information pertaining to the Jewish law, how that pertains to the church that's being founded. And in this, there's come to, come to these people and, and tell us something, and then Cornelius sends a delegation because he's also received a vision. And then we'll pick it up in verse 30, 1030. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. Again, two Simons in one verse. Not very helpful. So I sent for you at once. He's speaking to, to Peter. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius, Gentile, not a Jew. This is a man named Cornelius, verse 1, at Caesarea, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So this is emphatically not 
not a Jew. He's received this vision that he needs to seek out Peter. Peter's going to tell him something important. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So clear presentation of the gospel, clear presentations of everything, that, the, the major events that happened in Jesus' life, including his resurrection and the fact that he's the means by which you can be saved. Cornelius and his household has just heard this. Evidently, they received it. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so Jewish believers, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold, uh, withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And then Peter goes back to the church, reports this to the church, that something very, very, very significant has happened. Something very significant has happened, and it intentionally paralleled. And God's designed this very clearly paralleled what happened in Acts 2, which we read last week. So they, they, they spoke in tongues, and then the report is what we'll, we'll look at. Jumping down to verse, chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. Peter is reporting to the church what's happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Conclusion. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could say, no, 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 you're Gentiles, this isn't for you. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, the, the church in Jerusalem, the other apostles, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So in the Acts 10 and Acts 11 account, God clearly establishes that indeed the Gentiles are grafted in. Indeed, one body, all believers, are in the same family. So Peter's interpretation of this incident is that in keeping with the program of Acts 1-8, the coming of the Spirit to the household of Cornelius marks the breakthrough of the gospel into the Gentile world. So just as the believers in Acts 2 had some very visible manifestations of that breakthrough, you could say, in Acts 10 and 11, 
very clearly same paralleling. A quote from Sinclair Ferguson again. Uh, he specifically identifies the experience of the household of Cornelius with the experience of, of the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning and interprets the event in these terms. God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus. The event is viewed as programmatic, not paradigmatic. So it's, it's part of God's program, his plan. It's not that we then take, oh, the, here's the three points that happen in the book of Acts. We're just going to lay that on every Christian experience. No. The clear implications is that the Gentiles are on the same plane as the Jewish Christians. In this transition phase of salvation history, God is going out of his way, you could say, to establish the legitimacy of Gentile conversion and the deep unity in Christ's church. Any questions on that before we look at the last unusual account of the Holy Spirit coming in Acts? Any questions on Acts 10 through 11? We had to fly through that one, I'm sorry. All right, Acts 19. This one's kind of, kind of funny, kind of odd. It immediately follows Acts 18, which is talking about Apollos, who is speaking eloquently about Jesus, but he kind of was missing some very, very major parts of it, um, and indicating that, yeah, he, he was kind of missing, missing the gospel as he was going around preaching. And Acts 19 has a similar flair to it, a similar flavor is that they're, they're doing some things right, but they're totally missing other things. So Acts 19, 1 through 7, is the gospel believed by the disciples of John the Baptist. The disciples of John the Baptist, which are basically Jewish Messiah seekers. Jewish Messiah seekers. One's waiting for, looking for the Messiah. Verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Pause. When we hear disciples, we often think, Oh, that's disciples of Jesus. Jesus has 12 disciples. Disciples equals Jesus. Disciples really just means a learner or a student, someone that followed someone around. It was kind of really a formal category in that time, that someone that would go attach themselves to the ministry of a rabbi or a teacher and just be a disciple. So when you read, he found some disciples. Don't assume that means they're Christians. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. And then they said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you immersed? Into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. This is John, ministry of John, died during the ministry of Jesus, the guy that baptized Jesus, John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, these, these disciples were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They didn't even know Messiah had come. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So this is a very small occurrence, 12 individuals. It's kind of, throughout the book of Acts, it's kind of tying up a last loose end, a last category being those that were still seeking the Messiah, that didn't know Messiah had come, those that had received baptism of repentance from John the Baptist, but had not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So these men were functionally like Old Testament saints. 
who did not realize that they were living in New Testament time. When they realized that the Messiah had come, they trusted in Jesus and were saved. The Holy Spirit comes on them with visible sign gifts, tongues, and prophecy in order to establish that they are now also members of the body of Christ, the church. Again, that's by the laying on of the Apostle Paul's hands. So some conclusions regarding these occurrences. In Acts, Luke thoroughly documents the transitional moments of the early church, the transitional moments of the early church, including the Holy Spirit's initial reception by non-Jewish Christians. In all of these accounts, apostolic presence, an apostle being there, is a key feature. Because we're looking at the foundation-laying period of the church, the apostles' direct teaching and ministry is paramount to the major developments of the book, including these unique receptions of the Holy Spirit by new groups of people. Remember that the New Testament had not yet been written, which is why the apostles being there was so key. Today, we have the, the apostolic teaching with us, written. They did not have that throughout the book of Acts, so they had the apostles' presence. Another quote from Ferguson, All who come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord receive the same gift, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as the apostles did. Consequently, believers enter into the implications of Pentecost, the implications of Pentecost, just as they enter into the implications of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension was a one-time thing. So too, Pentecost was a one-time thing. But we today enter into the implications of those things, what flows as a result of those pivotal moments in the church uh, today by faith in Christ. So, lastly, receiving the Holy Spirit today. Receiving the Holy Spirit today. If you have repented from your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you have received the Holy Spirit. The New Testament nowhere commands a believer to seek a Holy Spirit baptism after they have already been saved. Instead, we read instructions such as those found in Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Lord willing, we'll get to look at this in two weeks more in depth when we look at the fruit of the Spirit. But we see things like walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. That's walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And then Ephesians 5, 18, where in contrast to drunkenness, the believer is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, lastly, the Christian life is one of total dependence on the Holy Spirit, but not a perpetual pursuit of spiritual experiences. The Spirit enables our obedience to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is not understating the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are truly and totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to God. So with that, any questions? If not, I'll close this in prayer. So things such as baptism of this Holy Spirit that's going to bring this sort of internal, subjective, spiritual high kind of thing. That's not, that's not the way the New Testament speaks of our daily Christian life. Spiritual warfare is less romanticized than this kind of mountaintop experience every day. Yeah.
Yeah, great point, especially on the, as soon as possible, right? Because we can kind of open up the, should we do spontaneous baptisms, which is the moment someone believes, come on, get in the tank, we'll, we'll dunk you. Um, and there's almost more of a cultural and historical reason why we don't do that. And one of the reasons is, I mean, like a picture of the youth group scene, someone just said they, they believed in Christ, they raised their hand, and then they're like invited to come walk the aisle and get baptized, and they're being met by their youth pastor that's just beaming with smiles. All their friends are ready to embrace them and they're excited, they're happy for them. Sociologically, net benefit for sure to just be baptized. There's this, this happy, so yay, it's great. But you look at the early church context, think more baptism in a closed country, Muslim nation, where baptism's going to immediately mark one out for condemnation, death, basically, by society. So because we live in a cultural moment that is so very different from that, we have a little bit more of a, hey, let's, yes, let's pursue that. You should pursue baptism. So your question was, on the internal side, for the believer, there should be that compulsion, yes. But then from the, and we want to make sure that that's a legitimate understanding of who the Savior is, who Christ is. Again, most of these accounts, not all of them, but were either, well, yeah, they were either, there was direct revelation involved in which someone received a vision from, like in Cornelius' example, received something directly from God and then was confirmed by apostolic teaching, or these were people that were Jewish, that knew to expect the Messiah, and it was like, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. I get it, it makes sense, I'm, I'm baptized. Now, someone might be in a situation which they, I, I kind of think I understand the gospel, the gospels that, Jesus loves me and I can do whatever I want, right? Yeah, come on, be baptized. So it's more likely that there's going to be maybe a, a, a gap. So um, the pendulum has swung very different directions throughout church history. Uh, in like the second century, there was like a three-year waiting period where someone, after they got saved, you like need to wait three years before you get baptized because you need to go through this, 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 and this. Obviously, that's adding things to Scripture. Nowhere does Scripture teach that. But also, there's wisdom in not just saying, well, in Acts, they immediately baptize people, so we're going to immediately baptize people. There's some cultural differences, too. Good question. Did that answer it? Yeah, I think so. Cool. The internal compulsion, I think, should be there, yes. Um, but then we also need to teach that that's important, too, which is why we teach, once you've believed in Christ, you should be baptized. Any other questions? All right, I'm going to close. Yeah. Verse 21 or 20? Yeah, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So it doesn't say this water. And he actually goes out of his way to like clearly establish, I'm not talking about you got wet, now you're saved. And he does that by saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So it's, again, I think part of the things here is we're talking early church in which the, I came to faith in Christ and I got baptized physically was such a closely happening reality that I think Peter's being very careful to establish what saved you was being immersed into Christ, being immersed into his death, burial, and resurrection. It wasn't the, I got wet and now I'm clean again. So I think it's within that very verse is kind of the establishing. It's, it's, okay. it's not a bath that saved you. So you're saying uh, the spiritual baptism that Peter's Yes. Okay. Yeah. But again, that would have been closely associated in the minds of those that have just seen, came to faith in Christ, got dumped. Any other questions? All right, Lord willing, we'll spend two more weeks in this. Next week, I'm really looking forward to getting into Romans 8, and then the week after that, we'll look at some key passages in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and then also the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So really looking forward to those passages. Feel free to read ahead on those if you want to read, yeah, Romans 8, and then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and Galatians 5. So let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. Without it, we would be totally guessing as to how we could please you, how we could honor you. We'd be totally left to our own subjective sense of what's right and wrong. We thank you that you've brought us into one body, that it's one faith that we've been brought into, whether, whether or not any of us have Jewish heritage or not, you've saved us by grace through faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you for these accounts throughout the book of Acts in which you so evidently went out of your way to establish that you were building one church and that your spirit would be indwelling every believer, that there would not be those that have and those that have not. Lord, I would ask that, along with all my brothers and sisters in this room, that if there are any here today that have not yet received Christ, been immersed into Christ, and totally surrendered to his lordship and received his salvation. Lord, I ask that today, even in reflecting on these passages that indicate there's no, there's no have it or kind of have it and don't have it. There's only those that are born again, saved, cleansed, washed, regenerated, and those that do not know you. Lord, I ask that any that are living perhaps with a sense that somehow half external Christianity is enough would fall under the conviction of your word, repent and trust in Christ. Lord, I ask for any of us today that are living in potentially any habitual sin or uh, unrepentant sin that you would, by your spirit, if that person is a believer, convict them and cause them to, to realize the contrary nature of what they're doing and walking against what you've commanded. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We would be totally at a loss without his ministry in our lives. I ask that you'd be with us in the coming weeks as we continue to dig into your word on these issues. We love you, Lord. We lift this day up to you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.